Good morning again and welcome. We are the South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church. And uh, if you're visiting with us for the first time, we're really glad that you're here with us this morning. We've been working our way through the uh, fifth book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, which is sort of like the history book of the New Testament in many ways. And uh, we are nearing the end of that study after a little bit over a year looking at it. In our last study of the book of Acts, we began looking at the events that followed the Apostle Paul's arrest um, while he was in Jerusalem and he was completing his third missionary journey. Uh, Those events were quite significant because they would eventually take Paul out of Jerusalem and ultimately all the way to Rome where he spent the final years of his life before he was executed. Now, as you may recall, it was while Paul was in custody in Jerusalem that a uh, he was uh, a plot was launched against his life, and so there were about forty would-be assassins who made this plan, and and those plans most likely would have ex- succeeded, except for this one fact, and that is that God was not finished with Paul, and so because God wasn't finished, and through a series of events uh, involving Paul's nephew, the plot against Paul is foiled quite providentially. And Paul gets transferred to a more neutral location, to a place that's about 70 miles away called Caesarea, where his case will then be adjudicated by a Roman procurator, which is kind of like a governor by a guy named Felix. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. Paul has been in Caesarea now for five days, and he's waiting for his accusers to arrive from Jerusalem. And eventually they do arrive, and so the trial is about to begin. And that trial is the subject of our study. Before we look at that, I'll pray and we'll dive in. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, please help us now to give our best attentions to you as best we can. And as we look at the scriptures which you have given us and by which you speak, living, relevant, transforming words to us. Help us to worship you now by receiving your truth and looking through the window of scripture upon you as our creator. And then in that light, help us to see ourselves better as your creation. And then finally show us what you are doing in this world and how we can be a part of that. We ask this, we ask at least this in Jesus name. Amen. So, as we begin to look at this trial that takes place with Paul in Acts 24, the first thing that I want you to notice is the case that is made against Paul. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which 
we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So, as we've seen, Paul's accusers in this case, the, this, uh, the Jewish religious authorities really, have arrived in Caesarea five days after his arrest. The party includes Ananias, the high priest, along with some elders who are likely from the ruling council back in Jerusalem. And then there is this one, uh, Tertullus, who is sort of the hired gun, the, the Morris Bard of Palestine, a skilled orator brought in to make the case against Paul. And so he does. Now, there are several things to point out as we contemplate these opening verses. Firstly, what we have here almost certainly is just a summary of the proceedings that day. This is not the entire transcript of the proceedings. Uh, Verse 9 serving, I think, as one indicator of that within the text. Uh, And I might add, while I know nothing about civil courts, from my experience with ecclesiastical courts or church courts, I have seen cases where the transcripts of the proceedings run for hundreds of pages. And so I think we can safely assume that more was said on that day than the nine verses we have here. But what we have here, while only a skeletal outline, is nevertheless sufficient for Luke's purposes. And so looking at this outline of the proceedings, we see that for the prosecution... The case consisted of an opening word of greeting to Felix, followed by three charges, which were then apparently corroborated in some way by uh, the Jews, which is probably referencing Ananias and the elders who were with him. Now, scholars tell us that the opening greeting that Tertullus gives that we just read, that this is following a kind of a set rhetorical formula that was used back in the day. And it really, it's, it all it amounts to is an attempt Uh, by Tertullus to sway Felix in the prosecution's favor by saying things that, as Alistair Begg notes, were long on flattery and short on honesty. How do we know this? Well, we know this because there are all sorts of other historians writing at the same time as Luke. And some of these other historians also talked about Felix, although not nearly as effusively. And so whereas Tertullus describes Felix as one who has brought about a lot of reforms and who has maintained the peace, the reality, according to these other historians, was something else. None of the other writers say anything about Felix bringing about any kind of reforms. And on the matter of peace, the very opposite thing is actually said. That is, that the period of Felix's rule was a very tumultuous one and that he had a practice of dealing quite harshly with domestic disturbances as they occurred. Indeed, his manner of responding to these things was evidently so destabilizing to the region that it resulted in his being moved out of his post and replaced there within two years, as we'll see later on in this passage. In short, then, Tertullus is just blowing sunshine, right? He's engaging in empty flattery and exaggeration in order to get on Felix's good side. Now, of course, as one writer points out, the whole thing could have backfired on Tertullus. You know, Felix might have sat there thinking, what is this Tertullus fellow up to? Who does he think he's kidding? I mean, everybody knows he's exaggerating here. So things could have backfired, but apparently it's a risk that Tertullus was willing to take, hoping that Felix's ego was just that big. And you see, his actual willingness to take this risk, uh, among other things, tells us something important. It tells us at least this, that the prosecution knows that they do not have a very good case. 
against Paul. And because they know that, they're willing to use every resource at their disposal, including hiring a trained orator and engaging in shameless flattery. At any rate, and after his insincere and manipulative opening remarks, Tertullus then proceeds to lay out his case against Paul. And again, what we have here is likely just a skeletal outline, but the main points of his argument are there to be seen. The first thing he says about Paul is that he's a plague, that he stirs up riots amongst the Jews all over the world. And so in a very hyperbolic fashion, he portrays Paul as this pest that just runs around all over the place, leaving in his wake unrest and violence and rioting. All the Jews, says Tertullus, throughout the world, all the Jews throughout the world, no exaggeration going on there. He then describes Paul as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, which is reference to Christians. So not only is Paul portrayed as a troublemaker himself, he's portrayed as a chief troublemaker. The kind that multiplies and duplicates his efforts by spawning all sorts of other troublemakers. He finally claims that Paul tried to profane the temple, likely referring to the events of Acts 21, 28 to 29, where some of Paul's accusers asserted but never proved that Paul had desecrated the temple by bringing a Gentile into a part of the temple where Gentiles were not allowed to go. This assertion was based on sheer conjecture with no evidence, but of course when you're trying to make a weak case, truth often becomes an unnecessary encumbrance, doesn't it? So the common theme, or at least one of the common themes in these accusations is that they are all really about peace and social stability. All three charges together portray Paul as this guy who was a danger to the fabric of society, as a creator of division and rebellion and insurrection. And Tertullus knows He's a smart man. He knows what he's doing here because he's talking to a Roman procurator. And if you're a Roman procurator, given oversight of some portion of the Roman Empire, then your number one job is to maintain the peace. You know, whatever else you might have done in the course of your rule, when the annual review came around and you looked at and examined the one thing that you wanted to be able to say was that you kept the peace because the big boss back in Rome wanted stability, he wanted control above all else. So what's Tertullus doing with these accusations? Well, he's sending a very strong message to Felix, isn't he? He's saying, this this is not a man that you want to ignore, Felix. This is not a man that you want wandering around in free society. This is not a man that you take chances with. This is a man that can make your life miserable. This is a man that if you ignore him, can cost you your job and maybe even your life. Such is the case for the prosecution that Tertullus makes before Felix. And at the end, he invites Felix to examine Paul himself, which Felix apparently declines. And we're told that the Jews, again, probably the high priest and the elders that had made this journey, they joined in the charge, backing up everything that Tertullus had been saying. And, you know, sort of at this point in the drama, the prosecution rests. And it's time for the defense to take the stand. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, verse 10, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, 
uh, I cheerfully make my defense. Now, several things to note, take note of with regard to Paul's opening response to the charges made against him, starting with this comparison of his address to Felix with that of Tertullus. And whereas, you know, Tertullus engaged in shameless attempt at manipulation through flattery and gross exaggeration, Paul does nothing of the sort, does he? What Paul says is true, and it's respectful, yet without being verbose or dishonest. He says, in essence, I'm aware of your years of experience as a judge, and for that I'm grateful. I suspect that kind of beginning probably didn't win Paul a lot of points with Felix, but it was sincere and it was honest. And at any rate, after that, Paul sets about making his defense, addressing each point raised by the prosecution in the order in which they were made. Once again, I think what we have here is a summary and not Paul's full response, but Luke has preserved just enough for us to have a sufficient understanding of what Paul was trying to do. So firstly, in response to the charge that he was a plague that was stirring up all the Jews throughout the whole world, here's what Paul had to say. He said, you can verify, verse 11, that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or the synagogues or the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So Paul's first response is to say, look, I've only been in the city for 12 days. Hardly enough time for me to go around stirring up some kind of massive rebellion. He's saying, indeed, he's challenging his listeners, I think, to go and check out his story. Because Paul's confident that, that, uh, that, that uh, they will discover that there are plenty of witnesses who would testify to his peaceful, non-confrontational presence in the city. And Paul raises another point here, one that he's going to press home even more strongly in a moment. But he says quite boldly, they cannot prove the accusations they're making. They have assertions, to be sure, But an assertion does not an argument make. They have no proof, at least none that would hold up under examination. So their first point is, in fact, pointless and weightless. Paul then responds to the second charge, but this I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, That there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience before, uh, toward both God and man. The second charge, if you remember, was that Paul was the leader of a sect that his accusers referred to as the Nazarenes. Because they identified with Jesus, who was from Nazareth. At any rate, Tertullus used his use of that word, sect, uh, to describe the Christians is quite deliberate. Because sect uh, was a derogatory word. And he uses such a word because he's not sure how the judge before him sees this situation. You see, there was a period of time early on when outsiders, like the Roman government, failed to make any huge distinction between Christianity and Judaism. And they did so because, generally speaking, they were not aware of the significant differences between the two centered around the person and work of Christ. And as a result, they tended to kind of lump them all together and just saw Christianity as kind of a slight variation of Judaism. 
So Tertullus was saying, look, this, this group is no slight variation. It's very different. The group Paul is leading is not friendly to Judaism. It's a sect. Now, where Paul completely denies the first charge, he does not deny this one. He says, essentially, yes, guilty as charged. I am absolutely a part of the way, which is another title for Christianity. And this, when you think about it, is quite an admission all by itself, isn't it? I mean, the first time we heard about the way was back in Acts 9, before Paul's conversion. It was a time when Paul was not a supporter of the way, but was in fact one of its greatest enemies. But now where is Paul? Well, he's done a complete 180. And Paul now unashamedly describes himself as a follower of the way. But then he goes on to say that regardless of what his accusers might think, the way slash Christianity is not something that is contrary to their faith, but was in fact the highest expression and fulfillment of it. One writer puts it this way. Paul's confession of faith here had four parts. He believed in the God of their fathers. That is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He believed in everything that agrees with the law and the prophets. He said he had the same hope in God as his accusers. Namely the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And fourthly, his conscience was clear on these things. In short, Paul was saying it wasn't that he was an innovator. Or had changed the faith. But in fact he was just being true. And loyal to it. As it was intended to be understood. And observed. When you think about it. The implications of Paul's statements here. Are fairly devastating. Because if what Paul is saying is true. Then it's not he who belongs to a sect. But in fact. It is his accusers. Who are now the sectarians. You see, if they had embraced the Lord Jesus as he had, then that would not be the case. But because they rejected the Lord's Messiah, because they scorned the one that the prophets had foretold, it was they who had now fully departed from the path of faithfulness. And so again, Paul's response to the second charge is to say that his belonging to the Nazarenes, the way, Christianity, it's not a violation of Judaism. It is the organic continuation and fulfillment of and completion of it. Paul then turns his attention to the third charge, which is the concern of verses 17 to 21. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Now there are several things to notice in what Paul says here. Firstly, as a response uh, as to the charge that he profaned the temple. Paul kind of takes a pretty indirect approach by giving an explanation of his reasons for being in Jerusalem. As a, which maybe at first doesn't seem like an answer, but it is. As Marshall points out, from Paul's own account of his activities in his other letters, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Romans 15, we know that this visit to Jerusalem, uh, that on this visit, Paul brought with him a substantial 
a sum of money that was collected from the churches over time to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem. So the reason Paul was in Jerusalem was to deliver these funds that he'd been collecting for quite some time for various other churches in order to pass them on to the poor, the needy believers. This is what he means by the phrase, I came to bring alms to my nation. And then the particular reason he was in the temple is also found here. And it stems back to some events that took place in Acts 21, which Woody took us through a little while ago. But the bottom line of that was this. Uh, The leaders of the Jewish church were concerned because some were spreading false rumors about Paul. They were saying that he was teaching people to reject and denigrate the teachings of the Old Testament. Well, the leaders of the Jerusalem church wanted to address that problem and so kind of rehabilitate Paul's reputation if they could so the work of the gospel would not be hindered. So what did they do? Do you remember this? They agreed upon a plan. And the plan involved four local Jewish men who had taken a vow according to some Old Testament teachings. And the completion and the fulfillment of this particular vow required several things. That they undergo a purification ritual, That they pay alms, that is, they make a donation or offering, and that they shave their heads at the end. And all of that was to take place at the temple. And so the leader's suggestion to Paul was this. Now that he was finally in town, was that he should be the one to take these four men to the temple and do two things. One, go through the purification rituals with them and oversee the completion of their vow by paying their expenses You know, making the necessary donation or offering for them. By doing those things, Paul would be showing in a concrete way that he had not rejected the law of Moses. And so this whole thing, the carrying out of this plan, that is what Paul is referring to when he says in verse 17, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Right? The giving of alms was a distribution of the gifts to the poor. The presentation of offerings refers to the carrying out of the plan formulated back in Acts 21. Now, how is all of this a response to the charge that Paul had profaned the temple? Well, it's a response because the very purpose of Paul's trip to Jerusalem was a holy purpose. It was a mission of mercy to help the destitute. Further, Paul's purpose in going to the temple was also a holy purpose. He was not there to profane the temple, but to behave honorably there. He was there to undergo a ritual of purification, to help four other Jewish men complete vows prescribed in Scripture. So Paul's whole mission here was an act of obedience and submission, not rebellion. Profaning the temple would have been completely counterintuitive to his entire purpose for being there. So Paul's saying, in essence, that this charge doesn't even make sense. At any rate, that's Paul's response to the charge that he profaned the temple. But then, as he's recounting this to them, as he's talking in verse 18 about being there in the temple, purified, not causing any disturbances, something occurs to him. And verse 19 kind of captures the moment when it occurs to him because Paul stops and he, he interrupts himself. And he says, in in essence, you know, actually, those guys really should be here. If there are people who claim that I profaned the temple by bringing a Gentile to a place where it's forbidden to go, then those people should be here. They should be in this room. 
Not these people over here who didn't have anything to do with it. And so in saying this, Paul shows that he's, he's no stranger to judicial proceedings. His opponents can't pull a fast one here. Apparently none of the people that were actually a part of the alleged act of profanation were there. And so according to Roman law, their absence means that that portion of the accusations being brought, uh, that has to be set aside by law. And then Paul wisely, knowing that he has them on this point, he goes a step further. Now that the third accusation has been rendered judicially incompetent, Paul takes the opportunity to make a suggestion. Verse 20, perhaps the men who are present might want to let the court know what the verdict was when he stood before them previously, as we saw in Acts 23. Do you remember the outcome of that? There was none. It was a split decision between the Pharisees and the Sadducees caused by Paul's professed belief in the resurrection of the dead. And so what Paul has done here, by means of his response, is to argue that there is no viable civil case against him, and there is, nor is there any theological or religious case against him. All of which puts Felix, the judge here, in a very difficult spot. Because he really doesn't even have enough evidence to detain Paul, much less convict him of anything. So what does he do? As Marshall says, he stalls for time. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So again, Felix sees that he doesn't have a clear path forward here, but because the Roman officer, Lysias, who was a key witness, was absent, Felix uses that fact to delay judgment. And I might add, he can delay judgment for as long as he wants to. And so what Felix is doing here, really, he's playing it both ways, isn't he? He's appeasing the Jews on the one hand by not simply dismissing their weak, unproven case and, keeping, and, and deciding to keep Paul locked up. But he's also being pretty fair to Paul in terms of his treatment because he is a Roman citizen, but also because, as the passage says later, uh, he was hoping for a bribe from Paul. After all, he had just heard Paul confess that he came into town with a lot of money to give away. He's probably thinking, well, who knows? Maybe there's more of that to go around. So Felix is clearly managing the situation. Or so it seems. What Felix doesn't count on is the power of God's truth or the unstoppable nature of God's purposes. You see, as we saw in our previous study, God hasn't brought Paul to Caesarea just so he can defend himself or be protected. God has brought Paul to Caesarea to be a witness to the truth of the gospel and to fulfill the purpose for which God saved Paul. A purpose which was announced all the way back in Acts 9. God's plan for Paul all along has been to use him as a spokesman before kings and rulers. And so when the opportunity arises, Paul seizes it. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. 
And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, in these closing verses, there are several things we could highlight. We could underscore again the sovereignty of God on display here as he continues to unstoppably work out his plans, his purposes. We could highlight again the providence of God. You know, seeing not only that God works out his purposes, but also how he does it. And how it so often happens in ways that we would never imagine or predict. Such as we see here. He's using Paul to speak the gospel to rulers and authorities but he's doing it through surprising circumstances. Through Paul's being set upon and beaten and arrested and plotted against and put on trial and moved around. Right? It's just not the way that you or I would have scripted it. It's not how we would have written this story. Or made this plan. But it seems to be the way so often that God does do things. We could highlight the further providence that because of the unique features of Paul's circumstance, Paul found himself in a situation that allowed him to continue his ministry for years beyond what he might have been able to do otherwise. Which includes the fact, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but it is in this situation that Paul was able to compose a number of important letters, including Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, Philippians, 2 Timothy, and then hand them off to his disciples who were permitted to come and see him as often as they liked. A significant portion of the New Testament was written and then distributed under these very circumstances. So there are a number of things we could highlight here, but the one that I really want to leave you with is Paul's ministry to Felix and his wife Drusilla. And again, because of the uniqueness of Paul's circumstances, he had this opportunity for personal, face-to-face interactions with this Roman ruler and his wife. Certainly, Felix had his own motives for keeping Paul around. They weren't good. He wanted a bribe. I'm sure Paul knew that. But you know, it doesn't worry Paul. I think he would have viewed Felix's greed quite opportunistically because it gives Paul, and more importantly, the gospel multiple interactions with Felix, multiple times to press home the claims of the gospel. And so he does. The passage tells us that Paul spoke to them a number of times. And not only did he talk to them a number of times, he talked to them about a number of things. He spoke to them about faith in Jesus Christ. He spoke to them about righteousness and self-control and judgment. And you see, there's a, there's a theme to those subjects. There's a pattern to the particular discussion topics that Luke mentions there, and it has to do with the backstory involving Felix and Drusilla. Scholars using sources outside the Bible tell us that this couple had a bit of a checkered past. Drusilla was on her second marriage. Felix was on his third 
He was an older man. She was much younger and apparently quite beautiful. As one writer says, theirs was the sort of story you see on the cover of the magazines enticing you to buy them as you check out the grocery store. Felix and Drusilla were this glamorous couple, and they were a train wreck. And this is the couple, you see, that Paul talked to about righteousness and self-control and judgment, the very things they needed to hear. As Alistair Begg notes, you know, Felix hasn't even decided Paul's case yet. And here Paul is talking to Felix about his own case. He's saying, there's another trial you should be concerned about, Felix. There's an impending trial. You will be in the dock before the judge of all the earth. And it seems that at least some of what Paul is saying was getting to Felix. The passage says that Felix became alarmed. So alarmed that he sent Paul away. But then he kept sending for him to talk further. In other words, he seems to have been both drawn and repelled by the things Paul was saying. The words about self-control and judgment would have landed hard on Felix and Drusilla. It was these words that made him or them fearful, I suspect. Paul's words would have exposed them in their unrighteousness. But right alongside those words, Paul was also telling them about righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. The kind of righteousness that God supplies, not by our works but by Jesus Christ's work in our place and on our behalf. To put it another way, Paul afflicted them in their comfort that they might, in their affliction, reach out to and receive the comfort that is found in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Which is to say, Paul gave them the whole gospel. He was willing to say the hard words about sin and unrighteousness and judgment And the need for repentance. But he was also telling them. About God's remedy. For their situation through Jesus. Because you know people who don't know their sin. Can't appreciate their need for a savior. Why in the world would you want a bandage for an arm. That's not wounded. And so Paul really is showing us the way forward isn't he. The kinds of discussions he's described as having here. These are the kinds of discussions. We need to be having with whatever audience God puts in front of us, a classmate, a boss, a neighbor, a senator. You see, there's a difference, isn't there, between showing people their sin so they reach for a savior or their brokenness so they long for restoration. There's a difference between uh, personal ministry that does that and ministry that simply highlights people's hunger So they reach for a sandwich. And really so many ministries or approaches to ministry boil down to just that. Identify whatever appetites are driving people. Success, financial security, or blessing, whatever. Identify the appetite and package Jesus as the one who meets it. But that is not what Paul is doing here with Felix and Drusilla. And it's not what we need to do with people either. And please note... That Paul also gives us some guidance here, I believe, in how we go about doing this. By starting with yourself. Your own story. Your own brokenness. Paul tells his story before the angry crowds outside the barracks in Jerusalem. Remember that? He's going to tell it again before King Agrippa in Acts 26. 
He seemed to be ready to talk about his sin and blindness to the truth, which now is the platform from which he speaks. We can and should do the same things. So ask yourself this question. What is the sin within me that Jesus has addressed and is addressing? That will likely require a long answer to an ongoing question. But ask yourself, what is the brokenness within me that has been and is being restored through the gospel? Ask yourself those questions because the answers to those questions are your story. The one that you will tell over and over like Paul. They are the platform from which you preach And they become the winsome invitation that God can use to beckon people forward as you gently turn the searching light of the gospel from yourself and upon them. They can see how you were and are and and able to endure the pain and the truth about themselves because they saw that you could do it in the gospel because of the healing truth of God's grace and mercy. And the sight of that can embolden them to take the same frightful but ultimately liberating step toward that uh, freedom that only comes from the cross of Christ. We sang it this morning. I once was lost in darkest night, yet though I knew the way, thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose and let my song forever be. My only boast is you. And the chorus comes in, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. We sang that song this morning when we came in. We in this room sang that song. But let's take Paul's example to heart. Let us too give people the whole gospel. Starting with our broken selves. So they can sing that song too. And mean it. Let's pray. Father, please do the work that only you can do by your spirit. Your truth often causes us to want to run. Please hunt us down. Pursue us with these truths until they take hold. Change us, make us more like your son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
take up an offering now for those that want to support the work of this church and various ministries that we support through the church.